It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? Daniel Jiggins! Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media, not to mention all of our wonderful sponsors. Um, today is Friday, May 7th. It is my lovely bride Jessica's birthday, uh, which is just super inconvenient given that Sunday is Mother's Day, and this happens pretty much every year. And um, there's something, um, and also my my mother's birthday is on April 29, and which is like the usually like the weekend before Mother's Day, and my daughter's birthday is a couple days shy of valentine's day so there's a thing in my life about women having inconvenient birthdays and demanding separate not demanding i shouldn't say that um but creating a demand upon an obligation upon me to have separate celebrations it's not quite as bad as like having your birthday on christmas or something like that but um it just means my day is going to be full of pounding out a g file and scrambling around to um do right by the fair Jessica. Um, anyway, uh, so some housekeeping. We got some great feedback on the social Darwinism thing. So I intend to do more of that kind of thing. Um, not sure what topic will necessarily be immediately next or when that'll happen or any of that kind of stuff, but it's just nice to know. Um, we can put that in the rotation. And also the drive time you know, uh, jokey jocks in the morning, um, thing got a lot of nice responses too, but we also got a lot of people saying, don't you dare get rid of the ruminant, um, which is this thing I'm doing right now, which is just me, um, talking into a microphone, staring out the back window of my office, feeling, um, a little bit like the orderly should come get me. Um, and because a lot of people like it. And so we're just trying to figure out we're going to, we're going to do that every now and then we're going to do this every now and then we may add days where we have other, you know, I, I ideally, I wouldn't mind bringing the remnant, um, up to five days a week and having it be a mix of interviews and ruminants and the solo reading things and the, 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 the stupid drive time thing. Um, or maybe a mix of those things where it opens with the stupid drive time thing. And then I tell the youngins get out of here cause I got to do some work kind of thing who knows i'm i just i've long wanted this podcast to be weirder um i think there are a lot of economies uh there are a lot of economic or financial or, or business related reasons to go five days a week if you can um 
and it's just trying to figure it out. I, 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 I don't want to do five, you know, sort of conversation ones a week. That's just a lot of booking and a lot of work and a lot of mental bandwidth for me. Um, but mixing it up could be fun. Things are getting back to normal. People are getting back in their cars. So, uh, just we're, we're thinking about all that stuff. I guess I'll start with, um, uh, my syndicated column, which is up on the dispatch website and in many fine newspapers over the next few days. Um, um, so I have this theory. I don't really lay it out like this in the column, but it's sort of what got, gave me the idea for the column, which is that, um, well, per, part of it's not a theory. I think part of it is just simply a fact. Let's start with the proposition that as a legal and constitutional matter, free speech has never been more free. Speech has never been more free in the United States than today. Um, I just think this is objectively true. It's not really open to debate. If you just com take combined the, 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 you know, the controlling legal authority, as Al Gore might say, of where Supreme Court decisions are, what are the New, New York Times visa Sullivan and all that stuff. Um, and you look at just how free speech stuff works in, in, um, on the ground in terms of political protests about what you can write about just what you can do on the internet without being censored. Speech has never been more free as a, as a legal and, um, constitutional construct. Culture is another matter altogether. And, um, I think we live in a particularly censorious time. Um, maybe not more censorious than some other times in American life. It's just that, um, you know, in the 1950s, it didn't seem like censorship. It just seemed like common decency for most people and it didn't register as much. But because wokeism or whatever we want to, whatever term you prefer for what everyone understands when I say wokeism, um, wokeism presents as a new, you know, religious, ideological, spiritual, cultural force as an, as an imposing or a, um, aggressive force in ways that sort of vestigial common decency in say the 1950s didn't, right? There's, a, there's just a significant difference between the sort of traditional understanding of um, what free, you know, of, of, of how society should behave, right? And sort of the long built up social capital of norms and traditions and good manners and all that kind of stuff, which you can rightly say, um, just as a matter of analysis or, or description, were censorious, right? Which were, you know, which crowded out dissenting all all manner of dissenting speech and behavior you couldn't do a lot of you know you, you couldn't easily publish a lot of pornography without jumping through a lot of hoops in the 1950s that was a lot of censorship in a completely value neutral sense it just was a lot of censorship but it didn't seem like it because everybody basically agreed on the rules of the road the reason why wokeism seems so different and and more censorious even though it may not be in terms of the net censorship that it generates is that this woke stuff presents as a religion. And I've talked about this, I've written about this. Not only does it present as a religion, um, that'd be one thing. It presents as a new religion, which is a very different thing. And new religions freak out adherents of old religions. And um, 
and it feels like, you know, and, and Ross Douthat has had a good column the other day about all this kind of stuff. You know, the, the, the wokeification of elite institutions has really only been happening um, in the, over the last 10 years, basically since the beginning of Obama's second term. You know, they're like uh, this crazy CIA video that we saw um, on the Twitters. And if you didn't, we'll put it in the show notes where um, there's a woman who sounds like the, you know, she talks like she's cutting a promotional video for the H depart HR department at Bryn Mawr College or something about how she's a child of an immigrant and she's a cis gendered uh, Latin Latinx blah, 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 with diagnosed anxiety disorder, but she's not going to let these things, you know, define her yada, yada, yada. Um, and it turns out it's, it's, it's all about her at the CIA, which is just interesting. Right. And, and that kind of video would have been far more plausible as a Saturday Night Live skit 15 years ago, 10 years ago, um, than an actual recruitment or promotional video from the CIA. It just sort of says something about where elite institutions are going and what graduates of elite colleges and, and various places like that um, expect from employers these days. And that's all new and it feels new and it looks new and it comes across as a kind of religious sensibility that people, that adherence of the old gods and the old faiths or the old faith. I shouldn't necessarily, we are a largely monotheistic society and I'm speaking figuratively, not, um, literally. Um, but, um, uh, you know, traditional minded people, even traditional minded liberal people, find some of this stuff very alienating very quickly. And um, anyway, I'm getting far afield, but I'll, I'll come back to this stuff. What gave me the idea for the column was is that um, it used to be that this kind of censoriousness, this kind of comstockery, if you will, um, uh, this kind of Puritanism, which is what I really think it is. It's the Puritan strain in American culture manifesting itself in a surprising new place and, and sort of like, you know, how water will always, um, find a way to sneak back in. Or as I, as I often talk about human nature, the Roman poet Horace says, um, you can chase, uh, you can chase nature out with a pitchfork, but it'll always come rushing back in. Um, there's a, there's a Puritan strand in American culture that, uh, just sort of shows up in the weirdest of places. And I think one of the places that's showing up right now is in all this woke stuff. And, um, and which brings me to this thing that I actually wrote about, which was banned in Boston. Um, a lot of people today don't remember this or know this. Um, but it used to be a thing to be banned in Boston. Boston, you know, was founded by Puritans. They literally, not figuratively, literally, banned Christmas for about a dozen years. Um, uh, this was before, this was like during the Cromwell times because basically Boston was a, uh, was a satellite, uh, colony of Cromwellian, um, Cromwellianness. I mean, I, 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 I should be careful here. They, I'm not necessarily saying that they wanted a Lord protector instead of a monarch in England or any of that kind of stuff. I just mean that kind of Puritan zeal um, was, uh, hot and heavy as they might say in Seinfeld in, in Boston. And they got rid of Christmas, but that Puritan kind of, uh, 
we know what's better for you uh, endured in Boston in all sorts of ways. And for over 300 years, it was almost a cliche in America to that risque, controversial, uh, transgressive books, movies, plays, songs would um, get uh, banned in Boston and just not allowed to be played and or read or sold or whatever. And it's really kind of amazing um, when if you go and you look at the lists of how of what was banned. I mean, a couple books by Ernest Hemingway and I mean Walt Whitman's less surprising uh, in the in the late. 50s through the mid 60s the everly brothers song wake up little susie was banned from boston radio and um the funny thing about it so like i was like i you know i know the song i'm not going to really sing it for you but you know wake up little susie wake up you know that song um that song um i had no memory of what the actual lyrics were beyond basically that and I looked it up and it is weird that it would be banned in Boston because the story in the lyrics is that this high school boy and his girlfriend go presumably to a drive-in movie and fall asleep and don't wake up till like four in the morning. And now they've got this dilemma that if she brings, if, if he brings her home now, everyone is going to think that they didn't just sleep together, but they slept together and, um, and that will ruin her reputation. And that's the dilemma. And you would think given the underlying message to be fearful of the social stigma of premarital sex, that would be one of the songs that would make it past the censors, um, in Boston in the 1950s. But anyway, again, digression, getting back to the issue at hand. Um, uh, the funny thing about all of this band in Boston stuff, which I, I'll admit, I think the first time I ever, at least as an adult, focused on the phrase, I'm sure I'd seen it before, um, was, you know, when I first started working at AI in the early 90s, um, I came in, um, Ben Wantberg hired me uh, to replace Tevi Troy, long frequent guest on this podcast. Um, but Tevi wasn't leaving for grad school for like three months. So we worked out this thing where I was like a paid intern, um, working basically for Tevi, um, for three months until I, and he would train me up and I would take his job. And the thing that we were working on for those full three months, which I still have the full transcripts of somewhere in my office, um, was this, uh, massive two day conference on global popular culture. And I actually learned a lot from this thing. And, um, you know, there's some, there were some threads that were presented to me back then that I've been pulling on for 30 years now. So, I mean, I'm kind of grateful for all of it. We had lots of interesting people there. Um, and, uh, one of the panels had Irving Crystal on it and, and Irving made this case for censorship, local targeted specific censorship that, uh, really got me going for a while i mean i i should put put it that way it really um was very influential on me and for years i would write stuff that was sort of one and a half cheers for censorship which i can get back to in a second but um he had this line where he says you know i'm so nostalgic you know i remember when i was a kid 
there you go past the Scribners, which is a bookstore in New York. You go past the Scribners and you see a sign in the window and it said, you know, Tropic of Cancer, banned in Boston. And um and it was like the people of he was his point was the eh, people of Boston didn't want the book sold there. Who cares? People in New York thought it was cool that the book was banned in Boston, and that's one of the reasons why they bought it. No harm, no foul, blah, 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 blah. I'm not saying you have to agree with them, but I just thought it was an intriguing way to think about things. So anyway, I've sort of known about Band in Boston for a while. And the funny thing about Band, Band in Boston is that it became sort of a national joke because I think I, I quote Upton Sinclair, who had a couple of books banned in Boston. He says something along the lines of, America was our sales territory and Boston was our advertising department. Because if you were banned in Boston, they immediately slapped that on the front of the book and um, it helped promote it and sell the book everywhere else. And you've seen versions of this kind of thinking all over the place. You know, I have friends who, when they come out with a book, and now I have some enemies too, but when I, you know, I know lots of people in my line of work that when their book comes out, they take the worst things that, uh, I don't know, Paul Krugman or whoever said about them and they use it as a blurb, right? And there's the, that's sort of the same own, the own lives thing is a little similar, but you know, it's a little different. But Band in Boston made it seem edgy and transgressive and closer to Samastat, you know, which was the name for the secret literature that was passed around in the Soviet Union. And um, people who wanted to sort of signal that they were edgy would buy books that were banned in Boston. Uh, bookstores have done this uh, to the extent there are any left. They used to have this, you know, banned book week, which was almost always total BS and fraudulent because the definition of banned books, I've written about this, was basically like some high school took some book off of the curriculum and the national library association said that makes it banned. Well, no, it just means it's not on the curriculum. But anyway, again, I, I swear this was going to be like a two minute summary of my column. And I just keep getting, you know, distracted by, you know, shiny things over there inside my, my brain. Um, so where was I? Uh, right. So Upton Sinclair basically makes this point. And it seems to me that today, what we may be witnessing is um, something different, right? So like now there's really no such thing as local censorship, not anything at least meaningful as local censorship um, because of the internet and because of cable TV and the commodification of information that can you know go around the world and all that kind of thing. It's just, it's very difficult to say you can't read this in Yadahe Flats, Nebraska, but you can read this in Peoria, Illinois, because everyone's reading stuff through screens and the local magistrates or who, you know, whoever, um, um, have no power to, to stop anything like that. But as, as sort of the horizontal landscape, uh, becomes homogenized in this respect, the digital landscape is, um, changing. And it seems to me that we may be entering into an era where, um, instead of saying banned in Boston, you say banned on Facebook or banned on Twitter or, or, you know, the time will come, you know, banned on parlor, you know, some woke guy will be banned on parlor. I'm sure one day, cause I don't believe any of these yachts actually really believe in free speech, but maybe not, but you, you, you get my point is that, that Facebook is the new Boston or could be the new Boston. And uh, one of the reasons why this occurred to me is, is that I find, you know, I think Josh Hawley is a very smart dude who is 
willfully behaving like a clown. And he's got this new book, The Tyranny of Big Tech. And he it comes out this came out this week, and he is acting like this national martyr figure who has been, you know, victimized, silenced, canceled, or they've tried to, but he's too heroic and too brave to let them do it. Um, you know, and he's got some reason to complain. Uh, Simon and Schuster dropped his book um, because of his jackassery about the, the election um, stuff. And you, know, you can disagree or agree with Simon and Schuster on that. I'm inclined to think Simon and Schuster made a mistake, even though I think what, what Holly did was reprehensible um, and, and, indef- and indefensible. Um, you know, reprehensible and indefensible people have been writing books for a very long time. And, and they signed a contract and their stated stuff about, you know, making people feel unsafe or whatever is all nonsense. But, uh, regardless, they took, they have every right, you know, contracts, as my friend Ron Bailey used to explain to me, contracts are not written to explain how they will be enforced. They are written to explain how you can break them. And so Simon Schuster was within his rights to drop him, you know, drop, um, Holly and, and, and not publish his book. And what did Holly do? He went and found another publisher. He went to Regnery. Now I'm sure he would have preferred to be with Simon and Schuster. Um, because Regnery, you know, I got lots of friends who write books for Regnery. I, I, I know the guy, I used to know the guys at Regnery really well, but it's, you know, it's a boutique conservative shop, um, that, uh, is less prestigious outside of conservative world than Simon and Schuster. Um, and, uh, but the book's out, right? It's called the tyranny of big tech. It takes dead aim at Facebook and Google and, and Twitter and Amazon. And, um, you can, you can look, read an excerpt at Amazon. You can for, I don't know, 1495 or 999, whatever the price is, you can download it instantly with one click at Amazon. Um, you can also read about, um, you can also, you know, follow how Josh Hawley's promoting his book on Fox News or on his Facebook page where he posts videos of his appearances on Fox News. When he's on Fox News, as he did on Fox and Friends the other day, you know, he said that uh, free speech in America is dependent upon the whims of one big monopoly company or something to that effect, referring to Facebook, which is stupid, untrue, um, and nonsense. Uh Facebook, whatever Facebook does, it at the end of the day does not mean that if there's nothing Facebook could do to kill the First Amendment. Um, it is a garbage, nonsensical, stupid argument. Now, you can say that, you know, Google is or that, that Facebook is less friendly of free speech than it should be. Re- I know reasonable people who argue that. Um, you can certainly say that Facebook and Amazon and Google and all these places are too woke, too left wing, too liberal, uh, have too many double standards when it comes to the kind of material that they're going to like, uh, hide or censor or whatever, totally open to all of that. But none of those touch the first amendment in any meaningful way. And I can't decide, I mean, Holly obviously just knows he's lying about a lot of this stuff or exaggerating or dissembling or prevaricating or whatever more friendly word you want to use for his dishonesty. That's fine. I'm not sure about like Charlie Kirk. Um, you know, Charlie Kirk had this hilarious tweet the other day about how, um, 
the Facebook oversight board, which is the thing that Holly was, was responding to, that the Facebook oversight board should um, be overruled by the Supreme Court as if the Facebook oversight board is part of the hierarchy of U.S. federal courts or something. Um, it's just, it, you know, really, really weird and dumb. It's sort of like, it's no more dumb conceptually or factually than saying that uh, the unfair um, ruling in dodgeball that gave Average Joe's the win in the championship instead of the Cobra Kai uh, dojo team, whatever they were called, whatever Ben Stiller's team was called, um, that the Supreme Court should have intervened and overruled Chuck Norris's final thumbs up at the championship of the dodgeball um, you know, game. And uh, because the Facebook Oversight Board is not part of the government, there's no standing. There's, I mean, I, I really... I resent having to explain this stuff um, because I think most listeners understand this. And you can say, oh, hey, take, take Charlie Kirk, you know, seriously, but not literally or whatever. That, that may give me a hernia, but fine. The point still remains is that, like, none of this actually touches the First Amendment. And it does touch the problem of the culture, right? And the culture is in a very sensory I don't mean sensory makes it sound like it has it's it dropped acid and it's like it can feel its skin and the air and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it has in a very sensorial mood, a very kind of uh, great awakening religious slash populist mood where it doesn't like people don't like disagreement. And um, and that's a real problem because you know, that's where the cancel culture stuff comes from. Now, I think that cancel culture is much stronger. Is I shouldn't say it's much stronger. It's much more of a problem on the left than on the right, in large part because the left controls so much of the commanding heights of the culture because uh, the left, you know, controls so much more of or has influence over so much more of the media, of Hollywood, of higher education, of the bureaucracy and these kinds of things. and um, And so the consequences are both more visible and I think, uh, more dangerous. The, the cancel culture of the right is much more, uh, contained within the four corners of smash mouth politics and whatnot. Um, but it's a problem on both sides. And I also just think the cancel culture of the right is much more about victimology and victimhood and whining, um, and martyrdom and that kind of thing in the cancel culture of the left is much more about this desire, this sort of Gramscian desire to change institutions and change the culture. And so anyway, how I got here, face banned on Facebook is the new band in Boston or banned on Twitter is the new band in Boston. And people are using the fact that they were banned in Boston to actually sell more books or banned on Twitter or banned or wherever they're using all that stuff to sell more books, to get more exposure, get their word out. And, um, um, that's as American as apple pie in some ways. It's just difficult to see in the, in the context that we're in. But since I've got onto all this stuff, I got to talk about this uh, birthing person thing. So I know it's a constant theme on this podcast that, you know, uh, part of my, you know, I'm, I'm, 
in previous at previous times, you might call me a concern troll for the Democrats because uh, this is before before the word troll had its connotations that we have on Twitter. Um, concern troll was somebody who um, pretended to be really concerned about the other party or about somebody and said, you know, I'm not criticizing them. I'm actually concerned for them. Eugene Robinson of the Washington Post, very nice guy, but um, he was a master of this kind of, this kind of column. He wrote it again and again and again, where he would be like, I want a healthy Republican party. Um, and I'm very concerned that they're going in a bad direction. And that's why I want them to do all of the things that I want the Democratic Party to do too. Um, so look, maybe I'm a little bit of that and all this, but I, I am fascinated by the way in which, you know, this James Carville argument now, Ross has been making this argument. I've been making this argument for a long time that the democratic party and really the country are being hurt by this tiny slice of elite, uh, cream of the meritocracy, um, cadre of, of mostly young, but also sort of young adjacent or young sympathetic um, progressives who honestly think that their academic campus leftism jargon should be the lingua franca of the United States. And you can see why this would drive someone like Carville crazy, because first of all, he's not great at fancy words, and I don't think he would take offense at that. Um, he is a sort of a Southern Louisiana Democrat who thinks you should shoot straight to people. He's got a sort of a class first economic populist strain to him, even though he's richer than Cretius. Um, and that's all fine, but he's like, look, you got to do politics. You got to talk to people in politics. You got to talk to the people in their language and not make them feel inferior or as they might say on campus, less than, um, by using fancy words, that they don't understand that are um, essentially shibboleths or code words for um, a certain out of touch elite. And I, and I know listeners know that I say this a lot, but like Latinx is the perfect example of illustration of it. No Latinos or Hispanics in America who aren't very, very online and very plugged in to, you know, uh, a very, small slice of this sort of academic HR world use the phrase Latinx or Latinx or whatever I'm supposed to say. And, um, and it, the problem with these kinds of terms, these kinds of shibboleths is that when they're very useful for communicating within the group that you want to be in, that you belong within the in group, but they always have a double edge because they communicate to people outside the group that, that you're not one of them and, um, and they can generate an enormous amount of hostility. And so, I mean, I have no idea this thing like burst out of nowhere. I really only saw, you know, it was really based on two tweets as far as I can tell, but this African American, African American female Congresswoman referred to herself, not as a mother, but as a birthing person. And then a bunch of people, including me, dunked on it because I think I think that's just just horrendous language. Um, and Nayral, or at least the Nayral Twitter feed, came to her aid and explained that birthing person is just 
part of being inclusive because non cisgender women can be can have babies too. Now I don't want to get too deep in the weeds and all this kind of stuff, but I really think this is all nonsense. And um and I don't mean that from a anti-transgender place. Um I mean I mean I think and again this might sound like concern trolling. I think this kind of stuff is bad for transgender people. It's also very bad for Democrats because um Look, there's a difference between calling people by what they want to be called, right? So when, when African-Americans or blacks no longer wanted to be called Negro, that was basically, you know, it took a little transition, but that was basically a nod to good manners to say they don't want to be called Negroes. They want to be called, um, you know, back then blacks. And then it was for a while African-Americans. Now we're going to back to blacks, but it's capitalized, whatever. That's all fine. No skin off my nose. Moreover, when I'm actually talking to actual like transgender people, I will refer to them by their individual, by their preferred gender or their preferred name. Um, because I just think that's like good manners. It doesn't mean that I think that they are biological women or biological men if they're, if they don't have that equipment, but I'll treat them like it because life's too short to just be a jerk to people. And, um, but when you say as a blanket thing that there is no such thing that, that, that men can have babies or that there's no such thing as a biological female that accords to what every medical textbook says they accord to, you are going far afield. You know, when you start changing categorical thinking, you're going far afield. And when you try to get rid of the word mother, you are going to lose more support than you gain. And this is just, I mean, just think about the most normal people you know in your life who are very sort of, they're, they're sort of progressive, they're inclusive, they're, they're not bigoted in the slightest, they're open towards, um, you know, being accepting of all sorts of different lifestyles and all that kind of stuff. How many of them do you think will respond positively to being called a bigot if they use the word mother, right? Or if they think that there's no longer really a category of person called mother because some 22-year-old in a social media account or on the staff of a congresswoman decided that mother had to be, mother was a cisgendered term that connoted a conception of biological femaleness that doesn't accord for the possibility that that trans men can have babies too like how much of your audience are you losing if you're trying to make that case and how much antipathy are you going to engender towards transgender people when you start telling them that the most basic concepts in their lives are bigoted or no long or are now no longer operative and that you're going to use this stuff as a cudgel to mock people and to say that they're not inclusive or they're not with it or they're not you know up to speed on what enlightened people think are people going to like thank you for doing that to them or are they going to resent you and where will that resentment manifest itself most not on woke cisgendered biological female women at NARAL, but on trans 
transgender people. I mean, it's just, it's so dumb to me. And, you know, and then there's just this larger point, which I don't, you know, I don't want to belabor because again, I'm not, I, I, I'm off the reservation on a lot of these kinds of things these days, but like in a free society, a free and tolerant and democratic society, it is absolutely true that majorities owe or are obliged to be tolerant of minorities, right? I, I don't believe this just because my last name's Goldberg. I think a majority, you know, in America, the majority of Christians at, at any point in American history, uh, going back to George Washington's, you know, letter to the Rhode Island synagogue, uh, one of the wonderful things about America is that majority communities felt with the obvious exception of slaves, you know, I mean, we could get to the bad examples, right? But the bad examples prove why my principle is right, not why it's wrong. Majorities owe minorities, however defined, tolerance, acceptance, a certain amount of deference and autonomy. Um, it's no skin off my nose if the Amish want to live the way they want to live. And maybe when we have total war mobilization and they refuse to join up because they're conscientious objectors, well, tough cases make for hard law. But as a general proposition, let different people live the way they want to live. Let communities live the way they want to live, even if it's not the way I would prefer to live. And at the same token, and in the same token, though, by, by the same token, my preposition generator is faulty this morning. By the same token, minorities owe majorities a certain amount of respect, tolerance, and deference. And that seems to have been lost in a big chunk of our cultural debates. And I'm not trying to make this as a racial argument. I mean, we can talk about it as a racial argument if you want, but I'm, I just mean this as a general proposition that the idea that an entire, the entire majority has, um, no, uh, right to its cultural norms, its, uh, traditions, its understanding of things simply by virtue of the fact that it's a majority is a very weird argument because first of all, the numbers shouldn't matter. Um, but if the numbers do matter, you think the majority culture would have more rights to deference and tolerance than the minority culture. Indeed, the, I just wrote about this the other week, Democrats right now are in this incredibly robust majoritarian, uh, you know, uh, celebration now where they want to get rid of the filibuster and they want to reform the Senate and they want to add states and they majoritarianism is everything right that uh that should that the the that that 51% of america should have whatever political agenda it wants because majority should always rule this is sort of and this made will wilkinson very cross with me um and uh but as a descriptive matter that's how they talk about things when it comes to politics about allocating trillions of dollars about you know expanding the social welfare state and all on all these fronts, the argument is um, majority, majority, majority. Democrats are the majority. Majorities get everything they want. And then you switch to culture, and all of a sudden, majorities are evil. The majority of this country is white. It's steeped in white supremacy. 
um, uh, the entire majority of the culture, which includes lots of Hispanics and blacks when it comes to things like transgender stuff, um, they shouldn't have their way because the entire nation state, you know, was it, what is it? Archimedes who says, give me a big enough lever and I can move the world. We now have this thing where give me a big enough, uh, boutique civil rights issue and we can move the entire population it seems to be the attitude of people and the idea that because and again as an individual human matter i'm very you know I, i'm nothing but polite with transgender people deirdre mccoskey is something of a hero of mine um and it doesn't freak me out that some people want to live this way i think that or feel that they have to live that way i mean that's that's a different argument do I think that it's getting a little out of hand in some places and that it is not that, that some of it is, is a bit of a, a, a psychological phenomenon that is taking certain corners of the society by storm. Yes, I do, frankly, but I also think that there is an irreducible number of people who really do have these feelings and, and I'm not going to like dedicate any huge amount of effort. If, if someone, if a, if a man wants to live like a woman, I just, I, I am not going to spend a lot of sleepless nights over it. That said, the idea that the entire country should abandon the words like mother for to 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 assuage the feelings and self-esteem of what half a percent of the American people is just nuts. I think it's nuts on the merits. I think it's nuts philosophically. I think it's nuts morally. But moreover, it's nuts politically. I mean, it used to be one of these cliches that, you know, in politics, you don't attack, you know, motherhood, baseball, apple pie, and that kind of stuff. And again, I'm not saying that Joe Biden is against the word mother anymore, but this is how these things start is they become these kind of like woke little prayer, you know, little campfires on Twitter and they spread. And it's reflective of a mindset that there are people who are signing up. And I just think it's insane. And it's insane in ways, you know, one of the things I talk about on here a lot is how much our brains process language more than we appreciate. You know, so much of the cultural argument, and I'm switching gears here a little bit, but, um, and I got to say, one of the things and all the feedback about not getting rid of these solo ruminants was that people like the fact that I just was thinking out loud and going off on these weird tangents and wandering off into the snow, like, you know, an escaped, you know, patient. Um, where was I? Oh, language. Right. So language, um, so much of the cultural stuff that, that a certain sort of part of the, on the left and the right, I mean, not in symmetrical ways, but you know, there are people on the left and the right who want to reduce these culture war fights to matters of race and ethnicity. Um, and sometimes that makes some sense. Sometimes that makes a lot of sense. Sometimes that is the exactly right thing to do, but sometimes it misses some stuff. And one of the things it misses is language and dialect. And, um, it's one of these things that I'm kind of fascinated by is that, um, a lot of stuff that we think, is explainable by racism because of skin color is actually more explainable by let's call it racism by by speech by dialect by diction and um there's 
really interesting psychological and social science out there about how language and accent and these kinds of things are more triggering at particularly at a very young age among babies. Go look at the Paul Bloom stuff on, in the book, fantastic book, Just Babies, that babies respond positively or negatively more to voices and accents and languages than they do to skin color. Um, in part because baby's eyesight isn't nearly as developed as, 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 as their hearing, but that goes to the sort of the way our brains work too. And, you know, it is, I think it's a true fact that, uh, that when you hear, sort of hear a, a black person speaking in the, in the, with a British accent, it, it, it scrambles some of your understanding of, of, of who they are and all sorts of interesting ways and i'm not trying to make some grand you know sort of racial argument here i'm just saying that um when you think if you think you can just screw with language which is really you know the um the nuts and bolts of how our brains work and how we process information um far more so than than color is um and if you want to start really screwing with you know, the language to the point where you're telling people, where you're signaling, even if you're not expressly saying it, if you're just signaling to people that you think they're bigots or you think they're not particularly enlightened if they use the word mother, um, you're not going to come out a winner on that. And I think it's fascinating that the precise moment that big chunks of the Democratic Party sort of brain trusts are realizing this problem this new thing emerges and it may look and for all i know by the time this podcast comes out it'll be forgotten as one of these weird um and you know uh social media squalls that rains on people for five minutes and then then disappears but i do think it's emblematic of the point i'm trying to make so with that how god how long have i been going um we should look at that 45 minutes jeepers creepers i don't have that much more to add on the cheney stuff um i talked about it with chris starwalt yesterday and i wrote about it on wednesday if you were a paid subscriber to the dispatch you would know that um and you would have read it and i shouldn't say that i shouldn't assume that you would have read it but um uh, uh you would have been able to read it and you know my basic take which i think is really broadly speaking the consensus among um, most conservatives, you know, I listened to the editor's podcast over at national review and, um, and you read their NR's editorial and you talk to mo most of the conservative people I know, um, have with, with a few exceptions, the same basic take Liz Cheney is 100% telling the truth. The election was not stolen. What Trump did was outrageous. And, and and deeply uh uh dangerous and threatening to uh the legitimacy of the country of the regime of the republican party of conservatism um, um i think most people also agree that the the person who really as i main part of my argument is that the person who really can't let this go they're all saying liz cheney needs to let this go the person who really can't let it go is Donald Trump. And so as is the pattern for the last five years, 
Donald Trump gets a free pass to be Donald Trump, to act like a jackass, to say things, to lie, to um, hurt himself politically, to hurt his party politically, um, to hurt the country in all sorts of manifest ways. And that's just Trump being Trump and you should get over it. And, um, and if anybody points it out, even as a matter of constructive criticism to help him, they're the ones who are obsessed. They're the ones who can't get over it. They're the ones who need to move on. They're the ones suffering from Trump derangement syndrome. I think it is all BS. And look, anyone, I don't want to antagonize any listeners or any readers, but I'm done hearing from people, um, who want to claim that this isn't the dynamic and that this isn't true. You know, for five years, I've been hearing from people saying, why are you talking about Trump when he's done, you know, when there are other things to talk about and what they really are saying is they don't want me pointing out, um, Trump's flaws. Um, and that Trump's flaws should be immune from criticism. And the rationalizations for that are all over the place. Some people, it just, it triggers them to hear it. Some people, they think it's bad for party unity and, and all that kind of garbage, which I don't give a rat's ass about, um, and all sorts of reasons. But it's still the same dynamic, is that the people who point out the truth um, are, are the ones that get all the blame, and the person who's actually creating the need to point out the truth gets a free pass on everything. Because Trump is Trump, that's his nature, and who are we to criticize Trump? Because he's the authentic embodiment of something or other. And I think it's all hot garbage and I'm really, this is one of these things I'm really unmovable on at this point. Um, and so the problem is, is that Trump keeps going back to this well, saying the election was stolen, which is a lie. It's a dangerous and pernicious lie. Most Republicans disagree with it. And I say that in terms of, um, I, I, I think that's probably true of most Republicans in the country. I think it is definitely true of most Republicans in the Republican caucus in the House and in the Senate. Th think it's a lie. Know it's a lie. I mean, not just think it's a lie. It's not an opinion. They know it's a lie. Um, but they're afraid to say so. And, um, you know, Mitch McConnell knows it's a lie. He said it's a lie. And, you know, the, the, the sort of let's just get the Republicans back in power crowd says let's keep it you know let's 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 keep that part on the down low keep quiet about it sure we all know that trump is lying and that he's um creating problems for the country by lying um that this is probably not going to help the republican party in the long run but you know what this country needs more than anything else is <laughs> is kevin mccarthy is house speaker so let's keep all that secret right let's do what mitch mcconnell did which is forthrightly, and at the time I wrote bravely, tell the truth about what Trump did. I think he should have voted for impeachment for conviction, but whatever. He he told the truth, which is better than a lot of people. And um, but then he's like, okay, I've had my say. Let's move on. Let's look forward, not backward. And that's what they all want Liz Cheney to do. And I think most conservatives, if you take the moral and the 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 factual stuff out and you just look at this as a matter of pragmatic politics and you treat what Trump did as if it was a norm within normal parameters and therefore something you should move on from. They think that's what Liz, sh Liz, Liz should do and that it's not, um, compatible with being in leadership. If you're going to say stuff that creates problems for, uh, members of the caucus, um, 
And to that extent, I think that is a reasonable complaint, right? I mean, I think that is, if you're just thinking about this as a amoral exercise and normal party politics, then yeah, I think the caucus is right to, to get, uh, to vote her out of leadership because she's dividing the caucus rather than uniting the caucus. She's making it more difficult for them to, to siphon off money from Trump and Trump world and Trump supporters and making it more difficult, at least according to their strategy to take back the majority. And that's not what someone in leadership should do. So she, she, they should vote her out of leadership. And as long as you keep it within the constraints of sort of the game theory stuff, which excludes the moral and the factual, you know, stuff, and also the long-term con considerations, then they're right. Cheney should go. But we should not lose sight of the fact that Liz Cheney is morally right, that she's factually right. I think she's analytically right in the long run that if, if the party continues to be a cult of personality to Donald Trump, um, that will be bad for it in the long run um, and also be bad for the country in the long run. Um, but reasonable people can disagree about that. I mean, uh, Jim Garrity has a pretty good argument uh, today or yesterday saying that, you know, the air is slowly leaking out of the Trump bubble and, you know, we can see him slowly shrinking in the rearview mirror. And he may be right about that. I mean, the, the Sarah Palin analogy, which a lot of people made is, is kind of apt. You know, there were points at which Sarah Palin seemed like she was going to be this colossus of the Republican party. And she shrank really quickly. It was a little different with Trump because he was president and there were a lot more people whose careers and credentials rely on the fact that they work for Donald Trump. So they have a vested interest. It's like, think of Trump as Bitcoin and you have a bunch of Bitcoins because of having worked for Trump. Of course, you want the value of Trump to remain high because it reflects on your own contributions and legitimacy. And so, like, I don't know, take take Nikki Haley, you know, full disclosure, my wife worked for her. Um, if Trump's standing among Republicans shrunk to zero, that would be very bad for her politically. Um, if Trump's standing with the American people shrunk to zero, that would be even worse, right? But if, if, if his value can be at a certain level that, and then she can outperform his value, that's very good for her. And there were times when that looked likely and there were times when it, it hasn't. But my only point is, is that there are a lot of people, a lot more people are invested in claiming that Trump isn't a liar and the election wasn't stolen um, than were ever invested in Sour Palin. And regardless, the, uh, the, the real issue, I think, for Liz Cheney and for the party has nothing to do with January 6th. I should say it has nothing to do with January 6th. But January 6th is the best. It's sort of like, um, how to put this? Uh, um, during the Iraq, the lead up to uh, the Iraq war, there was an interview. Sam Tannenhouse interviewed, I believe it was Paul Wolfowitz. and asked him something about, and I was, that wasn't during the lead up. It was in the aftermath of the Iraq war or during the Iraq war. And he asked Wolfowitz, you know, why this focus on, on weapons of mass destruction and, and Wolfowitz, if you read the full clip or you read the full exchange, 
gives a perfectly understandable, defensible, certainly not evil answer, which was uh, there were a lot of different constituencies within the government that thought toppling Saddam made sense, but they disagreed on the reasons why it made sense. And the only thing that everybody could agree on was that this was a guy who shouldn't be allowed to have weapons of mass destruction. So even though for some people, it's sort of like ranked choice voting, for some people, his possession of weapons of mass destruction was like fourth on their list. And for some people, it was first on their list, but it was on everybody's list and was the one thing they could build consensus around internally and then externally. What Cheney, I believe, was trying to do here was take January 6th and make it the thing that could build consensus among Trumpers, non-Trumpers, never-Trumpers, Trump skeptics, the entire pantheon. And for a while, that wasn't a crazy idea. Because if you remember, Kevin McCarthy condemned and blamed Trump for what happened on January 6th. Mitch McConnell did. Most sane and reasonable people did because he deserved blame. I'm not saying he was wholly or solely responsible, but the idea that he was, that, that, spending months lying about how if he loses it's rigged election and then claiming that he won on election night and then claiming every day after election that the election was stolen and having a bunch of uh you know utterly corrupted jackwads like Rudy Giuliani going around spreading lies and misinformation about how the election was stolen didn't contribute to the violence on January 6 um well then I you're not persuadable about anything and so, yeah, Trump deserves a lot of blame. Everybody, every reasonable person who was paying attention agreed that he deserved some blame for a brief window. Even Lindsey Graham said he was done with him. And then, sort of like human nature rushing back in after you dropped the pitchfork, there were the, the, the tide of Trumpism flooded back in and it all of a sudden dawned on people like Lindsey Graham and others that you still had to be loyal to Trump despite what they knew in their hearts he had done. And Kevin McCarthy all of a sudden realized, oh crap, how am I going to be speaker if if the Trumpers stay home and, and don't write checks? And and so what began and so commenced the uh return to Trump uh Trump humping. And you know McCarthy goes down to uh Mar-a-Lago and you know essentially begs for forgiveness and and a bunch of people try to go down to Mar-a-Lago and are turned away. And uh, Lindsey Graham does his, uh, you know, does another 180 and and starts um, humping Trump's leg like a overactive golden retriever. And um, and the thing is, is that Liz didn't, right? Mitch McConnell just had to say and then went quiet and focused on his stuff. But Liz Cheney said, no, I'm not going to do that. If I'm asked a direct question, I'm going to give an honest answer. And she's seen as the problem. But the thing is, my point is that she's using, or she was trying to use January 6th as this thing to build consensus, sort of like the WMD thing, to build consensus that we can no longer, as Republicans, and I'm not, I'm speaking for her and not for me, that the argument was, as, as Republicans, we can no longer put our fate in this guy's hands. He cost us Georgia. Um, he lost two presidential, he lost the popular vote in two presidential elections, including the one he won, you know, in the electoral college. Um, he, um, moreover, he's just not, he's not a steady hand, right? He, at, at the last minute, he can say crazy stuff because his vanity is involved. That will cost 
Republicans in swingier places, valuable voters, they need to get majorities. And having the party depend upon him as its identity and, and loyalty to him as, his own, as the only litmus test is a recipe for disaster for the party in the long run, in part because if you make loyalty to Trump a litmus test issue, the litmus test issue, the sin quanon, the ne plus ultra issue, as they're clearly doing when it comes to this conference thing, because Elise Stefanik is more liberal than uh, Liz Cheney, voted with Donald Trump less than Liz Cheney, um, is clearly more hackish um, in her ability to just uh, throw out everything she once believed and said she claimed to believe um, to get power and prominence. Um, uh, but the one thing that she does is she sucks up to Trump and she sucks up to Trump voters and she tells them what they want to hear. She lies about the election now. She lies about all that stuff. And that's, it's not so much that voters want to hear the lies, though obviously some do, but what they want to hear is someone do what Trump wants. And that's what Trump wants is his vanity is invested in the lie. The election was stolen. And so he cannot brook people acknowledging that they know he's lying. and. Um, and so the problem with that, uh, other than all the other problems that, you know, make me sick is that if you make a, let's put it this way. If you have a, if you have a, if you define what it means to be a Republican or a conservative based essentially on a single issue, um, you know, we can put abortion and that kind of stuff aside for the moment, because for all I know, Elise Stefanik is pro-choice. I mean, that wouldn't shock me given her, you know her political profile when she was first elected. But I don't know. My point is if, if just for the sake of argument, if you make a, a single issue to the exclusion of all other issues, the litmus test for whether or not you're on the team or off the team, you are just handing some of the world's most horrible people a ticket to the party. Right. I mean, like uh, if, if, if just being loyal to Trump is the only thing that really matters, what is the argument for keeping David Duke out of the Republican Party? What is the argument for saying that Marjorie Taylor Greene shouldn't be a fully vested member of the Republican Party? What is the argument for, for criticizing Paul Gosar for playing footsie with anti-Semites and white nationalists if the only thing that matters is loyalty to Trump? And this is one of the problems you get with, get with popular front politics is you open all sorts of doors to horrible people because you are only measuring their legitimacy or status based upon some narrow thing. And in this case, it's, it's loyalty to Trump. And, um, and that's why long-term this cult of personality crap is really bad for the Republican party because it will attract all sorts of terrible people. It's already attracting all sorts of terrible people. It's at, and, that's, and it's making some people terrible because um, they're addicted to the sort of zeal and ardor of of always being pissed off all the time, and um, uh, and and Liz's point, Liz's uh, this is my reading of it is Liz was using January six as a way as an exit strategy from all of that, and you know it's just worth pointing out that she wasn't a never Trumper. You know, she says she voted for him twice. She voted with him more than Elise Stefanik. She, you know, supported him um, most of the time on most issues. They had some disagreements about foreign policy, but she never made them like, you know, first order objections. 
So she behaved essentially the way people have been telling me for five years, all conservatives should behave, which is to shut up for the most part and get in line. And if you want to have complaints, make them quietly, make them civilly, and um, don't point out any of Donald Trump's flaws in any way that'll make him mad because making him mad is the real crime. That's basically what she did, which is why I had some problems with her. Um, I mean, I like Liz Cheney personally, and you know, I definitely admire her for what she's doing here. But you can't, you know, you can't say, "Oh, this is just some never Trumper who's, you know, trying to, you know, turn who's turning, um, who's just saying never Trumpy things," because she wasn't one, um, and at least not in any ways that are supposed to matter. You know, I don't know what was in her heart, but how she behaved as a public official was it precisely what the Trumpers wanted from public officials, and um, until she voted for his impeachment, which she should have, um, and. And until she started speaking honestly of January 6th, which she should do. Um, anyway, uh, we can, we can stop with all of that. Um, what else? I was going to talk about competitiveness, but maybe I'll write about that in the G file today. My basic, um, if you go back and you look at Biden's speech addressed to the nation, whatever, um, he does the same thing Obama did. He does something lots of presidents do, um, which is he put it all in the language of quote unquote of competitiveness that we need to spend vast sums on um, social welfare programs because that'll make us more competitive. Um, and I just think that, I mean, it depends what you mean by competitive, but for the most part, this is almost all nonsense and stolen bases and and just, you know, a, a rationalization and marketing program to spend a bunch of money. And, um, it's sort of like I saw someone pointed this, uh, um, on Twitter. I don't want to, I want to give credit. I can't remember who it was, but you know, all of the stuff about like, um, uh, paying, giving, giving families big subsidies, for daycare will reverse this trend in, in, in low fertility. And she, God, who was it? It was, I think it was the woman from the New York post. I apologize. I just can't remember for sure. But, um, whoever tweeted about it says, you know, part of the problem with this is that, you know, where has that been true? Where has fully subsidized, um, daycare, um, or, you know, head start schooling or whatever, whatever you're talking about, where has that improved fertility rates? And, you know, I don't think it's improved them in the Nordic countries where they have lots of it. And I don't think it's improved them in Europe where they have lots of it. Um, and, and, you know, all those countries have, I believe it's been a while since I looked at the, the tables, but I believe all of those countries have lower, uh, TFRs, uh, total fertility rates. Um, than the United States does even now. Um, that's not necessarily an argument to uh, not provide daycare or help or child tax credits. I mean, yeah, it depends on what the policy is. My just, just my point is, is it doesn't actually improve the thing that you're claiming to improve um, or will be improved, which is fertility rates. Um, and similarly, it goes with competitiveness. Like, uh, I know this is kind of heretical for a lot of people, but um, uh, Paul Krugman back when he was like 
more of an economist and less of a uh, polemicist, um, wrote some fantastic stuff about competitiveness. And basically, he just, he, and I think he was right, basically argues that countries, as an economic matter, we're not talking about geostrategic status, we're not talking about, you know, uh, military supremacy or spheres of influence and all that kind of stuff. And I'm perfectly happy to concede that some of that has to do with economics. We can talk about that. But my point is, is that as, as just a practical matter, countries don't compete with each other economically. It just doesn't work that way. But this is one of these, and I, I think I wrote about this in Tyranny Clichés, my underrated book. Um, this is one of these things that partly because of vestigial Cold War thinking, where we were in competition with a different economic model, which is kind of a different thing, um, in the context of a um, geopolitical struggle for dominance in the world, um, there are some people who have nostalgic conceptions of what competitiveness means in the context of the Cold War. And then there are other people, like business people, who think like, well, my whole life is about competing with other businesses it must be the same thing with countries and it's not, it's just not, they're just they're like a conflict, a competition between Coke and Pepsi for the consumers who will want to purchase sugar water is a real thing. But, um, the competition between, um, you know, countries when it comes to producing stuff, making stuff, it's much more about comparative advantage. And moreover, it's, um, uh, you want your quote unquote competitors to get richer too. And, um, you want them to prosper and that trade is actually, I mean, this is one of the things that people just have such a hard time with is that trade is not zero sum. It's win-win. I don't want to steal stuff from Scott Lincecum, but it's, um, it, the number of people who think that there's like a finite pool of money or goods in this world and if one side sells a bunch that means the other side is selling less it just doesn't work quite like that in international economics and you know i think i've talked about this before maybe even with scott but there are these wonderful studies about you know how that show why trade is not zero sum and my favorite is this thing that they do with kids where they'll come into the room and say there are 10 kids in the room They'll each give them a piece of candy, like, uh, you know, one will get a Reese's Pieces, one will get a Hershey bar, one will get a Three Musketeer, whatever. And they don't let them choose. They just assign them the piece of candy that they want. And then they ask them to fill out a form and they say, how happy are you with the piece of candy that you got? And, um, you know, some may get the, their favorite piece of candy, but some may get the one kind of candy that they hate. So, like, let's just say for the sake of the point of the illustration is that the 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 total, I don't wonder if people can hear my dogs barking up there, um, that the average score for satisfaction with what they got is five, right? Because some people were tens and some people were zeros or some were sevens, but some were threes. And that's how averages work. And then they say, okay, give everybody, give us back the candy. Uh, no, I'm sorry. Don't say give, give me back the candy. They say, okay, now everybody in the room, trade. you can trade your candy with somebody else. And, um, so the kid who's got the Reese's peanut butter cups and is allergic to peanut butter um, trades for the Hershey bar and he goes from a zero to a seven or maybe even a 10. 
And the kid who had the Hershey bar, he wouldn't take the Reese's peanut butter cup unless he wanted it more than he wanted the Hershey bar. So he's going to go from a four to a six. And the same thing happens all around the table. Everybody gets something they value more, even though it's the, it's the same sort of unit cost value in an economic sense, but they value more because it's what they actually wanted. And so even in this context where the number of candy bars holds constant, it's still not zero sum. It's, it's, it's win-win for everybody because everybody is happier because of trade. And the same thing, you know, it's, it's another way to think about it with all of this inequality stuff that we keep prattling on about. Um, you know, the other day, someone was very angry on the internet. I know that happens. It always surprises me because there were X number of uh, a billionaires in, in the world. And most of them were Americans and they were like 11 new billionaires in America. And that made them mad or whatever the number was. Who gives a rat's ass? I mean, I want more billionaires in America. I would like more billionaires to value the work of the dispatch and, and reflect that. But I just want more billionaires generally. I want more millionaires. I want people to get richer. And I, you know, as Marion Tupi and I talked about when he was on, you know, the remnant, I just don't spend a lot of time awake at night worrying about people getting richer. Um, uh, I should say spend a lot of time at night worrying about rich people getting richer. I do want poor people to get richer. And, um, but there is this deep seated in people's brains notion that the amount of dollars in America or the world is finite. And so if we have more billionaires, that means we have fewer middle-class people or we have more poor people because the only way they can make money is by taking it from somebody else. And that's just not how it works. And it's not how competitiveness works either. It's just, you know, the, you, if we got real issues with China and we, and we got, and they're geostrategic and military and diplomatic issues and all sorts of things, you know, we got to take them seriously. But if you're just talking about straight up, straightforward economics, if China went belly up tomorrow and its GDP crashed 75%, that would make us infinitely more competitive with China. Woohoo! It would also make us poorer. It would also hurt our economy and we would have probably a depression as well. And um, this is not an argument for why we should hitch our wagons to China. We shouldn't criticize China or we shouldn't decouple from China. That's all a different argument. My only point is sort of like, with loyalty to Trump or anything else, if you reduce things to a single concept or a single litmus test, you're going to get yourself conceptually and, and otherwise into a ditch. And um, competitiveness doesn't make us, we could be 10 times more competitive with, I don't know, China or Russia. And who gives a rat's ass again? I mean, I, I don't understand why, what, what that matters. What matters is the stuff that we're talking about that constitutes competitiveness. You know, if more people have jobs, great. But the reason you want more people to have jobs in this country is because you want more people to have jobs. The more people you want, you know, if you want people to be well-educated, it shouldn't matter whether, you know, it makes us more well-educated vis-a-vis Japan or Germany. It should just be like, we want people to be more well-educated. 
Um, and most of the things that it competitiveness is one of these concepts that people slide in when they, you know, and I, this is what Biden did in his address where he basically said, we have to prove to the world that democracies can, um, compete. And that's why, um, I want to force consensus around my spending program, um, in the name of competitiveness. And I just think it's, it's garbage and it's not true. And I won't, I don't know. Maybe I've just vented it too much to, to write about, which is the problem with doing these things in the morning. Um, so that's all I got for you. Um, I have to write this thing. And then um, Operation Fair Jessica's birthday kicks into overdrive. Um, although I will be on special report tonight, but you won't be able to see it because this won't come out till tomorrow. Um, and uh, uh, please, again, if you can become a member of the dispatch, that would be wonderful. Um, and, uh, I feel like I'm forgetting something, but that's, that's sort of my constant state these days. It's weird. As I get older, like if somebody says, if I'm, if I want to remember a name, I can see it there. I can see it just sort of sitting there like an old man on a porch. And, but if I walk towards it, it runs away. And, um, if I try not to think about it, the name will come to me. And, um, I find that so much with the topics here, I spend a week thinking about, okay, what am I going to talk about on this ruminant? Not constantly, but it pops into my head or it's more like I encounter something that's interesting. I was like, oh, this would be a good thing to sort of riff on, on the ruminant thing, but I don't write it down because I'm a moron. And then I come and I sit down at my desk down here in front of these jacknapes and I can't remember for the life of me what it was I wanted to talk about. And it's very frustrating. So, um, I'm not sure why I shared that with you. Uh, but apparently one of the things people like about this are the weird digressions. So look, cows, that's it. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.